Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. I continue today a series of one-word title sermons where I step back from what is going on in the world to look at an underlying issue. To follow my sermons on happiness, order, and freedom, I offer this one on authority. Let us pray. Holy God, speak your word with authority, so we will hear and obey. Amen. From the day we first learned the meaning of the word no, we've had to answer who is the boss of me questions. Who or what should have rightful authority over my life? To whom or what do I give too much authority? What is the right use of authority and how is it abused? Listen to something that Jesus says to his disciples in preparing them for the coming day, actually just a day or two away, when he will not be with them anymore. I mean, he has been the one that they have listened to, the one they've been able to wake up during a storm when they're in trouble, the one who taught them God's word and gave them a role model for how to live in God's world. Our mission statement is finding direction by following Jesus. Well, how do you follow someone that you cannot see? Well, Jesus speaks to that to prepare his disciples for when he is gone. Jesus says something that gives a pastoral twist to the doctrine of the Trinity. You have come to know God, the Father, in me. Well, you will know me through the Holy Spirit. Listen, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Boomer. That's a phrase millennials use when responding to what they think are out-of-touch or closed-minded opinions expressed by members of my generation, the baby boomers. It has been the experience of some millennials that boomers are prone to sound like they are entitled to the final say on every issue. Now imagine a millennial actually saying, okay, boomer, to a boomer, and imagine that neither one of them has any humility or a sense of humor. It would be an exchange where both are offended. The millennial by the boomer for being paternalistic. The boomer by the millennial for being patronizing. Each has 
dismissively patted the other on the head. Now, I'm a boomer. There are times when I am tempted to defend my generation. Maybe sometimes we boomers come across to millennials as so certain in our opinions because millennials are perhaps sometimes too certain in theirs. I think I just gave in to that temptation. But as fun as arguing for the home team generation might be, I can't do that today. Actually, what I want to do today is to admit that, generally speaking, the millennial jab has a point. Generalizations about generations are unfair, but some truths can be found in generalizations. More than any other generation in this century, baby boomers have had this rebellious tendency that comes from a sense of knowing better. We saw it when boomers came into early adulthood with their rebellion against a war and on behalf of rights, civil rights, equal rights, and rebellion against restrictions on personal behavior in regards to sex and recreational drugs. We've seen it later, even lately, as older boomers who are actually in positions of power and authority weaken and dismantle their institutions, agencies, and longstanding norms. In other words, the tendency of the boomer generation to rebel started early and hasn't ended yet, has been liberal and conservative and libertarian has had noble and selfish motives, has accomplished good and destructive things, has sometimes reformed and sometimes dismantled the institutions of family, faith, community, and government. To be honest with you, I sometimes have had a hard time finding my place in boomer world. My greatest role models have always come from my parents' generation, sometimes called the greatest generation, but that's ignoring their flaws, sometimes called the GI generation, but that's ignoring the women, and sometimes called the World War II generation, but that's being militaristic. (laughs) Notice that I just did the boomer thing and obsessed over language with this assumption that I can find a better way to say things. I think I'll stick with the greatest generation today because they were great in this sense. They were great at building things. They built up so many of the institutions of family and faith and community and government that we take for granted. Now, so many of that generation wanted to maintain and protect what they built. And I respect that. I mean, I am passionate about helping to build a staff here, programs here, ministries, a stewardship tradition, and endowments to strengthen Second Presbyterian Church so that it can stay strong as an institution and offer a witness for many years after I've departed this earth. But while I respect those of my parents' generation who sought to protect I have even greater respect for those in my parents' generation who sought to protect institutions by reforming them. I think that they are the kind of people that many in later generations have a hard time understanding because their passion to reform institutions did not come from wanting institutions to become something that they can respect and love. Their passion came from an already 
devout love for those institutions, love for family and faith and community and country. They had a deep respect for authority. And from that respect came anger when they saw authority abused. They wanted the best for their families and country, which is why they were willing to address the flaws of their generation that their generation had a hard time facing, like sexism and racism. I can point to role models of these kind of reformers in my biological family and my church family. I am the proud son of parents who, while living and working in the Deep South, took stands against the Vietnam War and racial segregation, who were accepting of family and friends who were secretly gay but who confided in them because they knew somehow that they would be accepting and loving. And yet I'm also the proud son of parents who loved living in the Deep South with its priority on family and place, who are deeply patriotic, who are rule keepers and living by a demanding moral code, who have devoted their lives to building up the churches that they both served, dad and mom. And then there are those I admire of that generation in my church family. Maybe I shouldn't focus so much on ministers, but I can't help it this week. Dr. Bill Klein and Reverend David Henry were both mentioned earlier in the service as two people who are now under hospice care and need our prayers. Bill was my predecessor, and David had a long career serving Baptist churches before joining this congregation in retirement. And both loved the congregations that they served. They had clear visions of what their congregations could become, and they used the authority of their offices to build and protect and to reform those congregations. And even when those congregations fell short of their visions, it did not dent their loyalty or devotion to them. You know, if millennials and boomers find each other hard to understand, imagine the difficulty of those of the greatest generation who built institutions to protect their families and their country, understanding how younger people could so easily abandon family, faith communities, and love of country over issues that they agree are serious, but they don't see as fatal. They are the kind of people who have this healthy respect for authority because life simply is not going to work unless some kind of authority structure is in place. With their realistic doctrine of sin, though, there came with this respect for authority a healthy suspicion because they know that authority can be abused. Which is why when they led their churches and had authority, they did so with humility. They tended to deflect praise too much because it made them uncomfortable. I want to keep them in mind as we think about the witness of the Gospel of John. Before I look specifically at the passage, I want to talk about the Gospel of John as a whole, and I'll include a detour into the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of John's perspective on Jesus is cosmic. 
It is the gospel's view that through the entire biblical witness, we have been creatures who live in creation, and God has been the creator whose face we could not see and whose voice, with few exceptions, was mediated through scripture, law, through experience, through the liturgy of priests and through the preaching of prophets, through the letters of apostles. We of the earth struggled to know the God of heaven. And that never changed for the Gospel of John. Except for this. John explains, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Jesus makes God known. In his voice, we hear God's. In his life, we see God's work in the world. I'll say out loud what some have said about this. Jesus was a cult leader. Jesus could get his disciples to believe what he wanted them to believe and to do what he wanted them to do because he had them convinced that when he spoke, it was the voice of God. I'll also say out loud, that there have been Christian ministers and congregations that could be called as witnesses to the stand to prove that charge. When Christians are asked to close their minds to any revelation that doesn't come directly from a literal read of Scripture or from the voice of some minister explaining Scripture, when they are asked to demonize and dehumanize as God's enemies those the ministers and congregations hate, they seem to make the point. But I disagree with the charge of Jesus being a cult leader. I am an unapologetic Christian who believes that we know God in Jesus, who lived then, who lives now. And one reason I believe this is that I don't see Jesus closing minds and hearts. What I do see in the gospel are disciples who are tempted to have their minds and hearts closed. That's easy to do when you're in the presence of someone who maybe can do the thinking for you, the believing for you, the work for you. That's easy to do when you're in the presence of someone who is charismatic and influential and powerful. They have found their purpose and meaning in following this man. They have trusted Jesus to tell them what to believe and what to do. They look to him to be their savior who will free them from their shackles, whether it's the shackles of Rome or the shackles of their own failing. But read the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus wants none of that blind obedience. He resists becoming the reason for followers to blindly accept and obey without thinking, seeking, doubting, testing, and praying. Here are the ways the Gospel of Mark makes my point. A storm comes and the disciples want Jesus to save them. And Jesus asks them, have you no faith? Thousands are to be fed, and the disciples want to turn them away. And again, Jesus asked them, have you no faith? And then asked them, what do you have to offer them? 
And the spirit of the transfiguration passage, when Jesus is on the top of the mountain and appears with Moses and Elijah, disciples want to build memorials to remember Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. And Jesus wants them instead to study and understand what Moses represents, the law, and what Elijah represents, the prophets. The crowd, the disciples, they often want specifics from Jesus so they can know what to believe or do, or maybe sometimes to pin on Jesus so as to get him in trouble. And Jesus answers with parables that defy definition and invite searching and exploration. Over and over again, the disciples want proof. They want power, and they want Jesus to lead them simply by telling them what to do. But Jesus has no desire to be this worldly king who is blindly followed. He has no desire to be a cult leader who is blindly obeyed. All through his ministry, he resists blind allegiance. When he is alive and physically among the disciples, the authority that he claims is as a teacher. One who opens up to others the deeper meaning of Scripture and particularly the heart of God's law. He also teaches by example and showing what God's justice and compassion looks like. Mark says this most eloquently when Jesus frees a man of his demons and people around responding, asking, what is this new teaching? His authority, in other words, isn't seen so much in his power, but in his example of showing compassion. But that said, John's gospel then makes clear that his authority as a teacher, even as a role model, is still not enough. Within the same conversation of our passage, which takes place while they're having their last meal together, Jesus says, I've been your teacher. In other words, Jesus says, I've spoken, you've listened, I've taught, you have learned, I've instructed, you have obeyed. But in this last meal conversation, Jesus says that his lasting authority isn't to be as their teacher, but as their friend now. You are now my friends when you love others as I've loved you. He says, when I'm gone, I'm going to trust you to make good judgments about how to be mature people of God. And you're going to justify that trust when you love others as I have loved you. And then, in encouraging the disciples not to be afraid because they soon will be have to be faithful without him, he says what we heard in our passage, you won't be alone. My spirit's going to be with you, within you. The voice of God that you heard through me will be a voice within you. No other voice than that one is to be your final authority. The final authority is to be a voice within. What a wise and dangerous word that is. It is dangerous first because, oh my goodness, can that oh-so-right answer lead to oh-so-wrong consequences? Because if that voice, that final voice, is within me, what an easy jump it is to say that I get to decide that I am my own final court of review or appeal 
I can decide for myself what I believe and what to do. Morality, in other words, can be reduced to personal preference. I can be my own God. That attitude taken to an extreme, psychiatrists call it narcissism. What theologians call it is the greatest form of idolatry. They say that when Jesus asks you to listen to that voice within, he is speaking of the voice of the Spirit that is his voice consistent with the Father, certainly a voice that is not your own. He is speaking of the voice of God heard in his own words and seen in his witness and speaking still to those who are able to listen over their own voice, over their own pride and shame. And here's another danger of listening to the voice within. If someone or something, a personality, a code, a social or a political agenda, does a good enough God impersonation, then their voice can get mistaken for that voice within. We all know that's true. Some of the worst atrocities in history and in lives have been committed in the name of God when lesser authorities are confused with final authority. I'll try to be more clear about that voice within. That voice within is not me as much as I try to make good judgments. The voice within is not the voice of my parents as much as I admire and trust my parents. The voice within is not some political leader as much as we need good leadership. The voice within is not the voice of religious leaders as much as I respect leaders like Bill Klein and David Henry. The voice within is not some code or agenda as much as I need rules to live by and as important as issues are to me. No, the voice within has to be God's voice as heard in Jesus and as still heard through our informed conscience. Informed conscience. The key here is consistency and integrity. We have, I think, plenty of ways by which we can make judgments about the authenticity of what we think that the Spirit is telling us. And ironically, the way that we can recognize the voice of final authority is through the instruction of lesser authorities. I'm going to sound old-fashioned here because I'm going to sound again like someone in my parents' generation who respected authority, who loved traditions and institutions, which they often sought to reform. Listen to Scripture. Yes, Scripture being as historically planted as it is, can be patriarchal, sometimes tribal, sometimes violent, sometimes out of date with its flat worldviews and its acceptance of cultural norms that are now unacceptable, like slavery. But listen to Scripture. For there arises from its witness, its total witness, this vision of justice and peace and reconciliation that calls into question even the vision of individual passages. Scripture interpreting Scripture is one of the great reform principles of scriptural interpretation. Don't listen uncritically to Scripture as God. 
but listen for God's voice within the witness of Scripture. Listen to the church. Despite all the dismissal today of churches as institutions, and despite the very poor witness of ministers and congregations who spread their own conspiracy theories and promote their own political agendas as God's agenda, you can see over the history of the church this vision emerge of justice and compassion and mercy and being a community that embodies God's love, however faultily. A vision that holds accountable even sad chapters of church history and disappointing congregations. Don't listen uncritically to preachers as gods, but listen for God's voice within the witness of church tradition in both its triumphs and its failures. And by the way, let Scripture help you see the vision of the church because it's in their alignment that the vision really begins to shine. Listen to the world. Despite all the sadness and disaster that is sometimes found in creation and despite all the injustice and misery that can sometimes be seen in history and found in communities, there does arise within our world this vision of ways that we can live that promote justice and decency and peace. We can see if we're looking examples of integrity as people live by values and virtues. We can see government leaders who serve the people. We can see jurists who promote justice in their classrooms. We can see individual acts of compassion and shared Programs of charity offered to the weak by those who have power and privilege. We can see the ways that neighbors can love neighbors and how enemies can reconcile. And by the way, the best witness of Scripture and the church can help us see in the world how to live as God's people. For there is within these visions this alignment that comes together, that allows the vision of God's realm to shine brighter. I mentioned the Trinity. The Trinity has been mentioned several times on this Transfiguration Sunday. There's this doctrine of the Trinity called perichoresis, which means indwelling, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are consistent with each other. They stay consistent with each other. In other words, we're not led to believe anything that we think the Spirit is telling us that is not consistent with the words and witness of Jesus the Son or God the Father, who is the God of the Torah. And so it is with all these lesser authorities I'm talking about. It is in their alignment and the consistency of their vision that we develop this informed faith. It's how virtues are shaped, that values are formed, that judgment is refined, and this moral conscience grows. We are given away to hear the voice of the Spirit that Jesus, as our friend who loves us, wants us to hear. It is the voice that tells us to love others in the way that he loves us. It's that voice that is to have final authority. Let that voice be the one we hear and obey, even as we show respect for all these other lesser authorities. 
Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.